I've been using uh, the coffee and then this weird like combination of tea where it's like black tea, green tea, and then the acetyl, what is it? Acetylcholine and then paracetam. Paracetam's good. Or no, alpha GPC. That's what it was. Oh, alpha GC. What is that? <clears throat> we put it in our pre-workout too. It's just like another I feel nootropic. like I've heard of that. It's like in a lot of energy drinks. Right? It is. It's in a lot of them. I think it is like uh, an analog to acetylcholine or like a, a, Ooh, really? a, su a supporter. So acetylcholine is is one of like the precursor drugs, right? That that goes involved with any... I'm trying to think about like what behaviors that is influenced by the acetylcholine whenever you're consuming these things, you know, like that's what I always feel like is the most misunderstood or like not understood aspect of drugs is just like, okay, I'll take these extra uh, exogenous, meaning any drug outside, right? Like we'll take all these exogenous chemicals. What behavior am I trying to amplify or trying to minimize, right? By taking it, like when I have acetylcholine and I'm pre presented with like, okay, your boss says like, okay, I want you to develop this Excel sheet, right? What does Excel sheet A look like without the acetylcholine versus B? Like, does it change organizational habits, for example? Oh. Or does it change like, you know, different different subtleties in your communication tactics? Like, you know, I, that's what I'm always curious about. Like, how does, how does the actual behavioral change of either communication or actual productive habits change when you introduce these types of, you know, and they're very minor, obviously. Mm -hmm. Like what the metric you'd actually have to have is, is gonna be so subtle and like you're not actually gonna find, you know, something, I don't know, without a very detailed detailed metric, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's kind like, of like a, I feel like it's kind of a brave new world. Like what do these drugs do in your exact metric quantifiable properties of outcome right like right. i give you x amount of this drug like what is the measurable change in what you're able to produce right yeah exactly and it's like it's like okay i have this person let's call them like you know typical villain right what is what is the neurochemical cocktail of, of a villain look like relative to a hero in a society like based on our standards you know what i mean like all right they have this like just mixture of like chemicals and like you know you could isolate the top like three like serotonin dopamine norepinephrine right which is, like the most like talked about there's also like gaba you know there's also um all these other different types of neurotransmitters that definitely play roles but i'm just saying like like what if you just found like the balance of like the top three and like you know like the other 10 percent of like the neurochemical cocktail let's just neglect because it's probably like a bunch of random shit you know mm -hmm. like there's in that 10 percent, there's probably like hundreds thousands of different types of weird little chemicals but like does a villain just have like if you look at the top three does a villain just have like like a hyper extended like dopamine system because like they're you know they're villains so they basically are constantly you know rewarded for taking other people's stuff or you know hurting people because they get that reward like you know what i mean you see yeah. where i'm going with it i think they've talked about that in the context of like presidents how those people even want to be president like you have to have such a uniquely like bizarre neurochemical combination where you're, you're kind of a sociopath like kind of a psychopath for even wanting that type of position like when you see super villains or people that actually commit like violent crimes or like mass organized crime of, of villainy like what what is the, the neurochemical structure going on in that brain to incentivize and reward those right. desires for for malicious well if you look at the like actions like, like i don't know if you remember but the shooter on uh, university of texas campus i don't remember when this happened when he killed like the eight, 70s right right or something like that yeah but more or less i mean the dude wrote a note after he killed all these people he's like hey check out my brain man like there's something screwed up in there Did turns really? out yeah they looked into this brain and he had a massive tumor pressing onto his amygdala 
And amygdala is, is a really big control center for emotions and so forth. And so it's like, okay, like what happens when you take like fear out of the equation? What is fear? Like if we put it into a biochemical context, is fear just like, you know, is is it is it, hey, maybe this guy's acetylcholine just wasn't wasn't being bind to a receptor which has this other mechanism and creates this behavior where it's like hey go kill people mm-hmm. you know it's like or or is it like you know I'm, i guess i'm looking for the motivations right like that's yeah. where it always comes down to because like where you identify a motivation you'll you'll find an outcome more or less like give, give it give it enough time right? yeah i think i think that's that's such an interesting like point to think about because i think a lot of the the actions in in reflections we try and make of why people are the way they are as adults and the actions they take and who they become it's so apparent to try and deduce that from like the childhood that they had the experiences that they had like the environment they grew up in but then when you have such things as like a tumor that can grow and press on the amygdala and make a significantly drastic personality changing event happen what is the the physical and immediate ramifications but also changes that you can make say like what if i just press like what if i just press on this part of the brain physically what happens right. if i just touch those neurons and constrict those neurons or like even more so electric electrically control neurons and stimulate different aspects of this environment right. for like neurochemical equilibriums that we can say like say okay say for depression anxiety addiction all these things that are extreme highs in dopamine serotonin norepinephrine or extreme lows and and inability to regulate those oscillations as they go to high highs and low lows. What if there was some self-learning device implanted in your brain that was like a slow release or timed release serotonin or dopamine or other neurochemicals where you, you precisely define ranges for those concentrations. And then when a patient or someone is going through like a low, low, you just kind of bring them back up a little bit or mm. a high, high. Yeah. Like but an, then, an almost a whole new external homeostasis system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like a pre-built. Only, yeah. yeah. Only, only on the error, only on like the but, extreme error bars, because then, then what it's like, my child was just born and I have euphoric excitement. Like you don't want to dull that down. Exactly. That's what so. I was just going to say. Like you could, you know, when you present like a different homeostasis, then are you also going to reward to say like, say I literally kill someone. Right. And I get all the different reactional states that are potentially very bad on my psyche. But now I have this homeostatic system, which is going to basically put me back to a baseline. It's like, oh, killing people isn't that bad now Mm -hmm. because we have this external homeostatic control that's, you know, just regulating the emotion. But you might also say, okay, well, a person will never kill someone because we'd never get built the homeostatic control that actually elicits that motivation. So then there's there's your like counter argument to that. So it's like, you know, it's, it's a very interesting like thing. And, you know, I think. That's what's so tough is like when you're defining an individual, you shouldn't define them by, you know, what what outcomes they've made, really, because it doesn't show you the future time scale of that person either. It doesn't show you the potential. You ask the question, what are your motivations? Boom. Whole different world view of that person, you know, and it's a tough question. Right. And the tougher it is, that also tells you something about a person as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That reminds me of the the Hulu or like Netflix documentary of Alex Honnold. The guy who free solo climbed El Capitan, unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. Like watching him try it over and over and over until he was like, yep, I'm going to do it without a rope. I'm going to climb all the way up. It was terrifying. And then they looked at his brain and they they said, oh, you have very, very low activity in your amygdala. And he was just like, okay, 
Like, all right, what does that mean? I'm going to go climb now. I don't feel fear when I do this. And that was just shocking where I think about how much of your personality of who you are, your, your, your ego, your mind, your soft personality is actually a reflection of just physical neurochemical manifestations and how, how easily one can change. Like as easily as when you have traumatic brain injury and you lose your ability to interpret English or your language or write that it it turns off like a switch. Mm -hmm. And to think of all of who you are, all of your goals and aspirations and personality and where you derive happiness could be a switch. Mm -hmm. It's kind of uncomfortable to think about. Yeah. I mean, here's what I'm thinking about that. Just that gets me thinking like, okay, for that guy, it's, it's rock climbing that really starts suppressing that amygdala. So like for each individual, what I'm imagining is like you create like, say like a hundred, a hundred activities, right? And every individual will be very different depending on what effects that activity has. But you, what you do is you'd have this, you know, basic dichotomy of a hundred activities and you'd have individuals just do each one of them, right? And see where it goes. You do a little brain scan before and after, and you see how these activities change that person. And so then over time, it's not like, Hey, what drug do I need to take? It's Hey, an activity will cause my body to react in a specific way, which produces specific drugs that allow me to change in the future. What are those activities for me? You know, yeah. and, 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 and at another level, you could say, okay, well, what's pleasurable for me, right? Mm-hmm. And this kind of gets into like the, at least from my eyes, the cognitive behavioral therapy session. But, you know, it is very interesting when you try to say, okay, well, what are the activities, you know, outside of just trying to like make me happier or whatever that means? Like, what are the activities that are going to make me better at learning? You know, yeah. just generic learning, right? Is it, is it, do I learn how many languages maybe? People always say like languages are a really good way to like, you know, start to engage a new part of your brain, you know? But I mean, like, what are those activities? Like, what's that, what's that optimization, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, what would those lists look like? I guess I'll just start with you. Like, what, what are your activities? Just the lists that I think make me, yeah, make yeah, me like, smarter. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think it, it comes down to all of my different physical senses and like the way the way i think my brain kind of goes through like states of challenge and one thing that really inspired me to try and address this directly was reading about or at least hearing about this podcast that was talking about the the waking states of the the brain so you have your circadian rhythm and then there's there's other like cycles of the brain goes through i think it was called like the arcadian rhythm or something like that i might be butchering the name but you have a, a, a sleep cycle that your body's used to regardless of like what time zone you're in, right? So like, that's why, oh yeah, I'm used to sleeping at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time or whatever. But your brain also goes through 24 hour cycles every like 90 minutes. And that's why when you specifically pay attention to the times of the day where you're the sharpest or kind of in a slump, it's like, okay, is this actually like my energy levels changing throughout the day? Is it my diet and like my blood sugars changing? Cause you have like a carb heavy lunch or are there actual rhythmic patterns that your brain goes through during the day and how you can identify those and target them and say, okay, if I know my brain can go in 90 minute intervals for different styles of learning and interpreting things and focused work and hard learning, identify when those are and try and utilize them. And I notice 100% for myself that I hit a crash regardless of what I eat for lunch, regardless of if I exercise or not, like exercise always helps, but at 1.45 every single day, I get tired. I get mm-hmm. this like brain fog. And I know that right when I wake up from like 7 a.m. until like noon almost, like right before lunch, I am so sharp. I'm so sharp and I can sit down and just crank through like deep work problems, which I think is really cool. So Mm -hmm. what's interesting though, because 
what you've just identified is a gap in your cognitive span. So what's an activity you can do in your, in your gap time that actually decreases that gap time? Right. And this is where it gets interesting. So it's like if you have an activity for, you know, any type of behavioral change that I want to make, whatever, whatever I want to do, maybe I just want to like, you know, be more like mathematical, right. Or analytical or something for some like reason. I don't know. And, and like, what's an activity do I do to just make me more analytical? Is it, you know, going online, doing a quick math problem? Yeah. You know, when I'm in that kind of slump and even though I'm in a slump, I just, I get it done. And what I'll notice is a, is a massive just decrease or minimize in my gap period. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's different for every individual. So there's no like formulaic way of doing it, but I just think it's very interesting. Whenever you have those gaps, it means, Hey, there is a reaction in my body going on that I don't particularly like, and it's not particularly helpful for me. So it's like, okay, well, let's try some things in this gap time. Mm-hmm. Cause clearly what I'm doing right now in my gap time isn't working. Right. Cause I, I do too. I get these like slump periods as well. And I'm like, okay, when I'm in my slump period, it's like, I got to move. I got to go do something different. It can't be work. It can't be, it can be work, I guess, but it needs to be a different way of engaging with the material. Like if I'm on my computer, like in an Excel or, you know, or like looking at like some kind of like graphs or doing some like, you know, maths or formulas or whatever, it can't be anything like that. It has to be something very different. It has to be like, like doing piano. Or something like that, yes. right? Yep. Jumping off, doing a quick beat of piano. And it has to be something kind of engaging as well, though. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like just something to just speak in a different language all of a sudden. Which is why I brought up that point about language mm-hmm. before. It's like, what is it? How do I just suddenly change the way my brain's communicating like that? Do you think you should do things that are completely different than what your normal tasks are all day? So like you, you do math, you do computation, you do you know, biology all day long and you have to think about those problems. And in those slumps, do you think you should try and do more specific math or something completely different, like practice a language or play piano or chess or like draw something? I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a good question because I mean, how much variation, right, is, is the generic part? How much variation do I have in my daily regimen? Like, you know, if, if, if my like piano is one of the ones that like helps eliminate brain fog and that, that gap, that gap zone or whatever you want to call it, that slump zone, right? How, how long will piano be able to get me out of that gap zone? If I do it five days in a row, is my body going to get used to it? And then I'm going to start associating slump time with my piano again. If so, then go back to doing, go back to doing work again. See if now, now what, what used to make you feel slumpy mm-hmm. now, doesn't make you feel slumpy anymore. Right. Yeah. It's like one of those things. And like it's if like, you, if you take someone who already is hyper productive or hyper focused on a lot of different things, is their baseline raised so that yeah, s- the, right? like if slump equals baseline of person, is that raised to their own subjective lifestyle? So like you take someone who's hyper productive and you say, you know what, instead of working 18 hours a day, you have to work. 16 hours a day and they feel horribly lazy or like unproductive that day. Or if you're used to doing like six hours of work and then two hours of piano and then four hours of reading for six months, will that just feel normal? Right. And you'll get the normal slumps. So it's like, you know, I I always say this, but it's like everything in moderation, even moderation, right? Sometimes you just kind of do something different. It doesn't matter what, just do something different. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, like I'm noticing something different as well, like in my behavior as well. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like, well, what are those activities? You know, like you want to find them and the quicker you find them, the quicker you can move from task A to task B, assuming you want to do a bunch of cool stuff. Well, I think I've heard this like time and time again from like fitness trainers and different programs is you need to follow a diligent specific routine for eight weeks 
but after eight weeks, you need to change it. So like the patterns of exercises that you go through, the, Shock the, body. the type you, exactly, like the type of exercises you're, you're performing, you should do them regularly and going through progressive overload, like trying to reach like a percentage of a one rep max or like mm -hmm. a certain volume per workout, whatever your, your goal is. But then you need to change it because your body will start getting used to that pattern of exercises, the frequency of those exercises and like shocking the body, whether it's, I don't know, thermal or cognitive or physical chemical chemical like surprise keeps your body and your brain adapting constantly paying attention right and so that's why it's like don't be a, a drug addict to a single chemical be a be a, a drug addict to you know <laughs> maybe i shouldn't well, use that word right but, maybe but not. like but try out scratch that i mean i was gonna say like like try out multiple drugs so that you're putting your body in a constant state of adaption, but that can get, that can get you into some loose, loose zones. So drugs I mean, in the context of, of general chemicals, yeah, like right. neurochemicals yeah, I mean, like, and exactly like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying food as, as another type of like drug, like, you know, like do I carb load before my, my next workout zone? I mean, like, that's what I mean. That's why I say drug, it can be confusing, but I, I have a very like vague understanding of like what drug is. Cause like people get it up online. It's just like anything that really, when you present it into the body causes a psychoactive reaction. Very true. The way we define, the way we define that is so loose and you kind of sit on this ridge looking down on one side and you see like the general definition and context of drugs. And then you're on top of the ridge and you're like, okay, I work in pharmaceutical or bio biotechnological drugs. But then you look down the other side of the ridge and in the next valley and you see sex, gambling, alcohol, caffeine, right. Right. lifestyles, making money, like and, fame, like all of it, all of it does release drugs into your brain that that build the same type of neurochemical and circuit addiction patterns that that smoking has. right and it's i crazy. think i think the, the general conception of a drug is really segregated by the time scale so people when they think of a drug they think of a low short time scale so it's like a day right and so anything that has a, a, a potent psychoactive effect within a day is usually what people call a drug right when they have alcohol they notice the effects immediately whenever you eat food however you don't notice effects necessarily immediately as, as far as in the intense experience but if you if you continue eating that over day the amalgam of eating you know like sweet potatoes will have a certain intense effect on your body but it will won't be during those time periods you know it'll be based on the last couple of days of eating habits as well and so it's like the time scales is a huge part of the equation as well and so i mean that's that's just something that's super hard to kind of grapple with and my diet is such an issue it's like okay well where where do i draw the line like you know if i have this diet for a week you know if i add if i instead just cut off it at eight days then is is that that eight day period a drug you know like that's the eight day period that causes you know what i would assume is in a normal intense reaction from a drug right and so it's like i don't know I guess I'm, I'm just trying to bind the two terms food and drug together, but maybe that, that just causes too much confusion um, in the grand scheme of if you want to change your behavior and if you know how to and what, what to change to change that behavior, you know? Well, I mean, in direct, in direct respect to like food, the stomach is like the second brain, like looking at new research and stuff that comes out about how many like 
nerves you have in your stomach and like in your gut and like what that that does to your overall well-being like literally eating good foods will make you feel so much better and i think looking at how just little minimal differences and like the type of caffeine you intake like do i get it from soda do i get it from coffee do i get it from an energy drink like just like different alcohols give you a different drunk feeling people know like oh tequila like that's going to be a wild night versus like a couple beers or you know right. a, a whiskey soda or whatever they they have different feelings but it's still alcohol right but they make you feel a different level of drunks like where you get your caffeine where you get your nutrition it it makes such a drastic difference and we only see it in the either on the time scale of a long time or in the extremes so like greater max greater minimums and maximums on a shorter time scale observable otherwise you have to wait right and but the, okay let me i guess this is where it gets interesting in my eyes is like okay what if i start eating healthy you know, every other day I eat healthy, then not healthy. So I eat healthy Monday, don't eat healthy on Tuesday. I eat healthy on, on Wednesday. But then it's like, okay, then I'll have some behavior here. Do I sum the last three days, right? And so it's net healthy because I had Monday healthy, Tuesday unhealthy, Wednesday healthy. But now on Thursday, it's like, do I sum those last three days or am I looking even further back, right? Am I looking for the last couple of days? At what point in, in the, the food history of a person does that become relevant to how you feel now, right? That's, that's, I guess, what I'm, I'm wondering. Like, if I ate unhealthy for the first, like, 20 years of my life, but the last year of my life, right, now I'm, like, say I'm 21 now, right? And so, for 20 years, I ate unhealthy. In the last year, I ate super fucking healthy, mm-hmm. right? Only the healthiest stuff, right? Do I feel, you know, good even now, like, right, like because I've been eating healthy for just the last year, or is it the fact that I've been eating unhealthy for 20 years, right, and, like, the time scales just add up. So, it's, like, 20 years healthy, minus one unhealthy is like 19 overall unhealthy. No, I think, I, I don't think so. I think it's absolutely, you'll, you'll have both. So you eat unhealthy for, for 20 years and you'll still feel the repercussions of that going forward in different areas. But I think you can absolutely fix and make up for a lot of those habits and the, and the implications that it had on your health with consistent healthy behaviors. And I think that's, that's in the context of, of like mental health as well. Like people go through periods of addiction and depression and anxiety. It's all about consistency then. Exactly. It's not about the, the previous last couple of whatever time scale we want to call it. It's and just about being consistent up to that point. From a psychology perspective, mm-hmm. from a, from a lifestyle perspective. So it's like tomorrow's day one and like it can, all, tomorrow can always be day one for, for all, all the different types of people who are trying to make challenges and changes and, and take the first step and looking at how long the process will be saying, Oh, you know, like I've done it for so many years, it will be such a long path forward, but tomorrow will always be like day one. And I think Mm -hmm. in the context of trying to look at like an, an aggregate of all of it, I think it's, it's on a shorter scale than that for sure. And then here's where we throw in the idea of what we were talking about before, which is variation. So now we're presented with a conflict. It's like, okay, we have, you have some limited amount of variation that gives you that, you know, higher well-being, but we also need to be consistent. So you need to be consistently varied, mm-hmm. right? Make That's, a habit of breaking your habits. Right. But also keeping habits, right? And it's this, this constant balance of how consistent before it gives me into the slump in my productivity, right? Cause it's, there's two coins here. So if your if your goal is to constantly live in a state of adaptation, what's your driving force desire? Mm, curiosity or, I mean, it could be knowledge. 
And I mean, I guess curiosity and knowledge are equivalent in this, in this sense. Because I think the greatest periods where you learn the most is when you have to adapt to something new and figure out how your new personality or your new living situation or your new mentality has to fit into this new puzzle piece that you've just put in front of you, in front of your, your path. Mm-hmm. You, you, you now have to change your shape to fit through this next puzzle. So I guess what is the driving force behind that? I think mine's desire. I think mine is the desire, obsessive desire to know what it feels like to be unbelievably passionate about something. Mm-hmm. Like to know what that feeling feels like to be so obsessively passionate about something. I crave that desire. Right. The desire, I, the desire to know. I crave that feeling. The desire to have a desire. Yeah. And and to be able to control when you have that like desire. Obsessive passion over, right. over something. I over think, but, over your trade or your 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 knowledge, your intellectual growth. I think I'm right. And that's I, what that's what drives me. And I, and I and I said that was like somewhat of, of a curiosity because I mean I'm assuming that desire isn't devoted to one thing, right? In your case, no, right? It's multiple things, but you want to hone the same level of passion in each one of those things, mm-hmm. so that as an amalgam, it's like all these like unique things that you do. But the same passion is thrown into each one of these categories. So it's not like you you have a desire to do one thing. Mm-hmm. It is you have a desire to be in a point where you are experiencing desire at different levels. Yeah. Right? And so it's like, okay, well, if, if your motivation or your desire is so kind of, I guess, vague, what keeps it intact when you don't necessarily know what your desire needs to manifest into at a given point in your career in your life or your relationship. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so like if I'm not necessarily passionate about my job, well, that, that must mean, you know, like I'm not, not exercising the passion in the right domains to get my job done. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? And so it's like, it brings up that question It's like, well, what could I do to get the same thing done, but to have more passion while doing it? Huh. Right. <laughs> Can you brute force it? Do you think? Because I feel like I think, like, the, I I feel think like you so, have to like initially, right? I feel like so often I hear about people, especially coming out of like their their undergraduate or their graduate first couple of years out of school. More often than not, I feel like are not particularly happy with what they're doing. And I think that's something that I hear fairly regularly is how people are trying to find the satisfaction in their their roles and their careers and their jobs. And you go through this this kind of six month rapid fire cycle of life essentially for 20 years, Right, like for 20 straight years, you're going from summer break, fall, spring, summer break, fall, spring, summer break. And it's just school, 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 school. Then you're dropped into the real world. Right. And then people have these ideas and visions of what, what life will be like when you get there. But now do you have to brute force this, this passion or is that not the right way to do it? And you need to you need to find an area that organically, like, what are you thinking about when you don't have to? Well, right. And I, I think here, this is where I'm just going to jump on one of the words you use, which is, or phrases is, is real world. When you enter the real world and that changes how your desires are, because I mean, I don't really know what the real world is. And I think if you think you're going to the real world, like before you were, you were in the fake world, right? But now you're in the real world. It's like something happened there. Like, why, So if, if I'm in the fake world, maybe the same desires don't work in the real world now. And so that's maybe what causes the confusion. Oh. It, it's, you know, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you're never really changing worlds. Like you're just, you're maturing. You're maturing your desires. 
And so I think if you think that there's an actual like hard line transition between, you know, fake world and real world, like I'm entering the real world is what people say, like, oh, wait till you get into the real real world. It's like, it's like, well, if I wait till I get into the real world, then what has the last 20 years of my, my life been doing as I've been developing and so forth? I've been developing for a world that I'm not actually, that I've never existed in, right? And so then when I enter the real world, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing because I've never been in this world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> See what I'm saying? It's like, what is, what is the real world? It's like when the, it's, a, it's a 21 year tutorial for the wrong game. Right. Exactly. And so it's like, okay, I can brute force stuff, but like, but in, in my other world, I, I, it wasn't necessarily a need to brute force things because I was living in the world that I wanted. Right. And like, that's the, at least the fake world. It's like the world where your responsibilities maybe aren't as important to get done or the responsibilities that other people think you should get done more or less. Right. And, and like, and so like the brute force is, is that really you need to get things done that other people say you need to get done, which is true. I mean, like you need to like get your basic Mavlov's hierarchy of needs done and so forth. But, you know, at that top, it's like the real world doesn't have that top, right? That top of like self-actualization and, and self-realization for your desires. And the real world, I think, I think when people refer to it, it's just like you cut that part of the Mavlov's hierarchy out, you know, that top part of like self-actualization. You just do like basic necessities. You, you grow up and once you're in the real world, you just take care of your basic necessities and then you die. And like, That's okay, yeah, yeah. you know, no wonder you had to brute force everything, you know? Do you think we actually live in the, like, not, not in like a metaphorical context, but like, do you even think this is like the real world, like the United States where we live right now, California, like, I don't, I don't, this is not the real world. Like this is, this is still, it's still, I mean, it's on a still a game. On a statistical population level, obviously not because the 330 million, right. Is such a small population of the world. Like if we took like the average world, like the average, like if you took the amalgam of all humans that currently exist and develop some kind of perception, some kind of like AI perception of what, what the world is now based on that average statistical demography of humans across the world, you know, you can create a world that no one lives in. Mm -hmm. And, but it will be the most common one to everyone because it is the average world, but no one lives in the average worlds. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, it depends where you want to, what, what kind of world you want to be in the end of the day. And that's why I say, it's like, well, wait till you get in the real world. It's like, no, 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 no. Wait till you get into the world that you want to be in. And that's what it should always be. It's just, do you want to be in this world or not? Right. That's the general question. And it's like, if you want to be in this world, fucking fulfill your passions and desires because you only got a limited amount of time to do it. Right. And there's all this like, you know, crazy variation, habit structures, you know, optimization and so forth. But at the very, very beginning preliminary line, before we even start on the race, it's like, you know, what world do you want to be in? Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's always key. And, and for me, it's like I want to be in a world of curiosity. Right. And so that's my driving force. Right. And that's why I never feel like I have to like brute force things necessarily. Like sometimes there is like some like, you know, random like software I'll find online or some kind of like thing. And I'm like, oh, this would be great if I just knew this coding language that it would help me like work out all these like logic structures in my head. And like and I will have to brute force learning that software. But once I learn it, it's like, oh, now I can be creative in this means and develop that passion. So there's like kind of this balance of brute force. I don't know. I think I would agree with that. I think it makes me wonder when, when I think about like the state of, of people now and like what I, what I most frequently hear people talking about is, do you think the, the advent in the accessibility for so much different immersive technological imagination to exist in our lives and our minds makes people more dissociative from our real world and like, 
and withdrawn and depressed because not just, not just on the, like the surface level of like video games and, and like social media and the, the ability to open like an app and look through 50 different lenses across the world and see what people are, are idealizing in that area. But I mean, like really imagine the, the different realities that could possibly exist. And then coming back out and seeing where we are. It's like taking, it's like taking a color filter on everything and then taking it off. And I wonder if this, if this makes people less excited to try and change this world and instead go back into the much more safe, real digital world where you can, where you can create anything and everything without material restrictions whatsoever. Right. Yeah. Like you only go into the real world. And I heard this on, look, that's just a fantastic show, but you, you suit up like a coal mine. What show? It, it was the, the Bo Burnham's inside. Unbelievable. But the one, I think the thing that stuck with me the most is, is like the real world is like a coal mine. You suit up, you go in, you get what you have to do to bring things back to the much more real, much more important digital world where things exist and your, your identity matters there even more. Right. And I think it's, it's interesting because you're seeing the, the, the internet as a canvas for human reaction, I think more or less, is you're looking at the outcomes of how things have affected people. Right. And you're seeing that canvas of, of, of emotions and desires painted onto it in this virtual non-material world. Like before I could, you know, look at what you owned like materially and kind of, you know, understand a little bit about that person. But now it's like, now I have to understand the reactionary elements. And I mean, like you can look at like art online and so forth and that'll kind of show, but again, all this stuff is just abstract things created in in your head. And as, as much as, you know, our computers, materialize it on our screens in the end of the day it lives in just some kind of you know non-concrete data packets right that we are all so gung-ho ho about but our emotions more or less are just data packets now yeah. right than than actual you know sens- sensations that we can touch and feel with i don't know maybe maybe that's too far maybe you can maybe you can really touch you can get touched by things online like don't get me wrong but like I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to draw the, the contrast before between like feeling online versus feeling in, in reality. That is the material, you know, yeah. in person world. Right. I'm going to go on a, a projection or at least an, an idea train. And hopefully this doesn't get like too, too sci-fi, but it makes me wonder as I imagine forward and try and think like, what could this reality present to itself or present to us in the future where we get to a place where our emotions get so dulled, our capability for emotions and reacting to things and feeling feelings become so dulled 50, a hundred years down the line that what you just said, our emotions become data packets actually becomes a physical commodity where you have to go to a store or you have to go to a location like a bar. And instead of ordering a drink, you order like, can I have a, a serotonin boost? Can I have a happy boost? Can I buy some happiness today? Or like my life's been, my life's been too high lately. Can I buy some neutralizing, some, some, we do some that now. agents? Like, can I, can I, can I go buy some empathy from someone real quick? Right. We, we do that now. We're just really shitty at it. Like there's just all these weird adverse effects, right? You have all these just kind of symptoms. Like when you, I mean, when people want to, you know, suppress their fear, what they're going to do is right now is you're going to drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's going to make them a little dumber in my eyes. And it's going to make them a little bit less fearful about it, it exposing themselves. Right. Yeah. But right. You have those adverse effects, too, because when, when you drink alcohol, I mean, if you drink a lot of it, it's a two day drug. And the next day you feel like absolute shit. And so, like, there's this payoff 
right? That, that is just constant, that, that balance of, okay, if I feel in an intense way, you know, does that intense feeling then take away from a neutral feeling that I'm going to feel tomorrow? And then I'm going to be, you know, I felt, you know, net positive at an extreme level. Then tomorrow, am I going to feel net negative? And I think it's, that's where, that's where we have to be careful because I mean, we, we shouldn't be playing with emotions where that optimization exists. I feel is as if like, cause I mean, think about it like this, like what if the drug itself, instead of giving us a net positive, what if we take a drug and it has a net negative and then the next day when we're not on the drug, we have a net positive. What if it's the exact opposite, right? And so then we don't associate the good feelings with the drug. You never build the addiction, right? And then you associate, you know, just doing the drug is kind of a, like, like a working out experience. Like you go, you go work out and then, you know, it's kind of painful while you're on it, but you get the net, the positive benefits the next day. Uh, right. One of those types of things. Right. And I think that if you just, if you just flip, flip the whole thing around and you, and you try to optimize the exact opposite, you get into something very different type of type of understanding of it. You I think know? that's, I think that's like much, much more deeper in, in like well-written psychology is, is easy, easy pleasure, easy euphoria breeds weakness, or at least the ability to succumb to the desires that, that are so easy to come by. Whereas difficult challenge equals true euphoria and pleasure. Stoicism preaches this idea for sure. It's like, imagine the worst possible reality, you know, catastrophize the hell out of it mm -hmm. so that you're prepared for anything, right? I mean, there's there's a level where I think that goes too far where like, you know, if you have someone who already has a level of anxiety and they start imagining the worst possible scenario, it's like, okay, that's not gonna be helpful and conducive to like you getting your shit done, right? Like, you know, it's just take a step back and it's like, imagine something, you know, it's kind of bad that you can actually be prepared for. Yeah, You know, it's one of those things where you gotta level yourself. I think, yeah, you can go you can go as deep as you want in both directions on that one for, for, for true deep like stoicism and saying, like, okay, if I had absolutely nothing, like if you say, okay, look at like people who live in the, the, the Congo, the heart of darkness and say, and then look at all this infrastructure we have and like all of the problems we have become so, so minuscule. Or if you say, I will get rid of all of my belongings entirely. I have no physical belongings whatsoever. And then I am gifted a banana. And that was, that made my week. Cause like that was more than anything I ever had. Right. So it's like, what, where, where do you want your baseline to go? And I think that's a, not a problem, but a thought that I have with true stoicism at times where it's like, how, how firm is your, your baseline for attachment to things versus ideas versus like where you put the cent, cent, the central kind of navigating point for like where I mark pleasure and change. Like, right. like I, I don't, I don't buy something and be like, wow, this made me feel so good. Like clothing, it, it doesn't matter to me or like a car, like that's a, that's a functional functioning vehicle. It doesn't mean anything to me and it has a purpose. It takes me somewhere when I need to take shit with me. Right. More of a utilitarian approach there as far as the, the items you use. And, you know, it, it, you know, I'm just thinking about now this, this idea that, you know, an, an item itself can elicit intense emotions. Like when I give you like that banana, you know, when, when you, when you took that banana, it, maybe it wasn't necessarily the banana. I mean, you can buy bananas for like, you know, like 99 cents a bushel, right? Like 20 cents a banana, right? It's not about the banana itself being that value. It's not like it's your, the value of the item correlates to the reaction of the emotion either, right? What I'm getting at is that 
what I think about the banana, it's like, okay, well, how many other times have you gotten that banana? It comes back to the idea of consistency, right? If you got a banana every day of the week, you wouldn't really care. You know, day five, you'd be like, oh, I just got a banana. You know, like I got a banana yesterday too. But right. And then it comes down to the idea of, okay, how novel is this thing? Right. Yeah. And like the novelty of the item itself is what I think causes an emotional reaction correlate of like the intensity of it. You know, it's like, and, and, and I think it's twofold. It's like, how novel is it and how valuable is it as well? Mm-hmm. So if it was a banana, it's like, okay, it's a novel banana, right? You know, then that's great. It's going to make me feel good. Right. And it's going to give me like a net positive feeling. Right. But then if I gave you that banana again tomorrow, you wouldn't really care. But then let's say I gave you like a, uh, I don't know, like a nice, like nice coffee mug, like a hundred dollar hand woven coffee mug. Right. On day one, you're like, hell yeah, I got I got a dope ass coffee mug. Never had this before. And then day two, I give you another coffee mug. You're going to be like, hell yeah, I got another dank ass coffee mug. Right. Because What's happening there, I think, is that value will inflate that reaction over time. So even though it becomes less novel, just because it's such a high value, it'll allow that item, that same rewarding item to persist for a longer period. So like day two, you start on the banana. Day two, you start losing like, you know, that was great. I got a banana versus day two on the coffee mug. You're like, you're like, hey, I I still got a cool coffee mug because the coffee mug itself is more valuable. Right. You see what I'm saying? So it's like two variables, I think, novelty and the value of the item, the societal value of the item. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that basically coin your reaction, the yeah. intense reaction to it. Yeah. Or I guess the inverse of that. So say, say like in, in mouse and rat experiments, when they give them like cocaine or water or whatever at a regular time every day, like the, the Pavlovian experiment where it's like you ring the bell, right? Every single time they come but like, okay, so they're so used to it every day. I give you 11 a.m. every day, your, your food, your banana. And you're so used to it that it has no novelty anymore. And it's so consistent that you expect it every day. So the, the range of excitement or like neurochemical additive that that brings is diminished over time. I don't know if that's diminishing returns, but then is the, is the, is the gain in neurochemical excitement from receiving that on an expected consistent basis equal to the loss of not receiving it one day right. out of surprise? I guess it, just, it makes me think like when, when you have these consistent additives to your life that you're so used to that are part of a regular pleasure center or routine. I don't mean like pleasure center in the sense of what brings you like excessive pleasure, but I'm saying like your cup of coffee, your favorite breakfast, your, your, your little nuances and idiosyncrasies that you have for your life that make it better on a regular basis. Is there a diminished return over time in that time aspect that we were looking at of the, the level of, of happiness or pleasure that it brings you? And is that a function of it can, if you consistently maintain gratitude and like respect for like where that thing came into your life and how appreciative you are of it or is it more of a function of your brain naturally gets used to everything just like your body will naturally get used to everything and your brain is not your friend your brain is not on your the side of your overall body and mind it will find and take the paths of least resistance for immediate gratification to prolong 
its existence as a whole. Right. It is not trying to make you last forever. Let me, let me stop you there because I think I think there's a good point there. Like, you know, your friend is not necessarily your brain. And I think the reason why that is is because of the society and the stimuli that this society presents itself with. So following your brain, like you just take opioids all day, right? Because opioids make you feel good. And we didn't used to have opioids there. So the brain doesn't necessarily know the potential negative out- outcomes of doing that kind of stuff. So it's like, Maybe in like primitive societies, follow your brain, right? Because it's like, you know, you don't have those potentially negative uh, stimuli always presenting yourself as you do with with society today in modern day. And so it's like, you know, you never really had to worry about like, hey, is this food that makes me feel good right now, right? Is that going to cause a big long term deficit? I mean, I mean, you'd probably think about it a little bit, but we know nowadays, you know, and so it's like exceptionally true that you have to be able to control, you know, that those types of stimuli in society that weren't always present before. Mm-hmm. And and so like, yeah, like your brain nowadays is kind of not your friend because people know how to make money on your brain because they know it's base instincts. People know when you go to social media, for example, that your brain's gonna behave in specific ways and they know how to, you know, put your attention into specific places on the web. And so that's where your brain becomes not your friend because they're, they're using your basic impulses of rewards and so forth to control the experience that you have while using maybe a software or whatever it is. And so that's where your brain becomes, you know, not your friend. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so it gets, it gets really tricky there because, you know, when is your brain your friend? Like, when do I, when do I just trust myself, my gut instinct, you know, like, can I just trust my gut instinct? Like how often? Right. Because these days you never really know. I mean, there's, there's people that are very smart, very competent and know exactly how your brain's going to behave when presented with some, some kind of thing. That's what all the research and all the different innovation goes with. Um, and, and so it's, it's very interesting. And, and, and I, and I wanted to also bring up another point that you were referencing before, which is, you know, the idea of what is the value of rewards, both negative and positive, as in like, you know, when, when this, the software company is trying to control your experience on there, do they present positive rewards and the intensity of that positive reward will be the same as if they presented negative rewards and the intensity of that negative reward? Are those two values equivalent? And I think it's very important when you're understanding how to control human behavior at this level, because it's like, okay, we get them to a point where it's too positive and they might realize, hey, I got to get off the app and go do something more worthwhile with my life. So then you have to present, you know, negative rewards every once in a while to keep them coming back, you know, keep them coming back on the platform. You don't want them to get, you know, too high minded or else they're going to escape and come to the realization, hey, what the hell am I doing right now? But you also, you know, you don't want them to be too negative or else they're going to have the exact same effect. Mm-hmm. And so it comes to the idea as, as like, you know, can I, can I increase this, this positive, let's call it, let's put it on a numerical scale. So it's just really simple. So say you have some baseline emotion and let's just call it zero, right? I present reward A, right? And it gives you two points up on the scale and I present you a reward A, but it's a negative version. Does it, does it move you negative two points, mm-hmm. right? Does the same, does the same stimuli when presented to two different people, one has a positive outlook about that stimuli, one has a negative outlook of that stimuli, Right. Do, do, do they basically have the same magnitude of influence on that individual as well? And I, I think it's just, you know, I'm really just trying to think about how these people understand controlling, you know, how much rewards do I give this person to motivate some specific action? Whatever maybe. Maybe it's staying on my platform. Maybe it's sending out a couple more tweets, right? Or whatever the hell it is, you know. But but th- I think the power is in knowing what those what those reward mechanisms are for yourself. So you can identify, hey, 
This is something I know I have a vulnerability to. This is something I know that I like to do and I'm seeing it here and someone else knew that I like to do it as well. I should be exceptionally careful because they, I know that they've taken advantage of some reward and sometimes okay. Sometimes it's like, yo, let's just go. Let's just, you know, you got me right. Like, you know, you might be doing something right. You know, you might, you might've been able to assess who I am and that's great, you know, but there's a point I think where it gets too far. Right. And then where you where you get so locked in the rewards that for, you forget that you can create your own. That's interesting. Do you think. Do you know if like the big tech companies hire psychologists or, or neuroscientists to work for them? Because we've essentially created a commodity and commercialized the the neural circuits and transmitters of children and, and young adults in today's society. It is a commodity now. Who can create the best model for neurochemical retention of usability and screen time of a platform? Do you think they hire like psychologists to go through? Because they use so much, such um, such deep levels of machine learning, data analytics, and, and different metrics to understand the, the algorithms for usability, for r- retaining talent and attention on a platform. Like, do you think they they, they purely follow like trial and error machine learning to understand what, what different factors and adjustments and, think, and features can keep yeah. someone on an app? Or do you think they actually work with psychologists and understand human behavioral psychology to say, you know, what colors and what flow and what things like yeah, bring no. you into this platform and want you to stay here? I, I actually don't think they do because of the scale they exist at. So if it was a small scale, I think the need of a psychologist would be would definitely be valid, right? Because they're not seeing the possible space of reaction. But if they have such a huge scale, like if they're using millions and millions of users and they make a, some subtle change, they can just look at the data and it'll tell them how the psychology is mm-hmm. better than any psychologist ever would because they have a million data set, instantaneous, you know, real-time interaction and so forth. And so when Facebook can, you know, in this case, they can change their UI and they can just see exactly what colors do what, you know, just based on all the stats they already have and all the data bins they are already created. And so they're at a point where the scale is so big that they can find subtle, nuanced, idiosyncratic psychology elements without even, you know, talking to people who've studied this for their whole lives. Do you think they would make? So I think if they did. I think they run into a lot of problems because they don't hire psychologists. I think they run into a lot of problems of abusing human psychology because they, they're looking at stats and how to, you know, just subtly increase their profit margins and mm-hmm. so forth. That's, that's their psychologist. Their I, mean, psychologist. I, don't think it's, I don't think it's subtly increasing. Yeah. Maybe it's not a subtle increase, right? It's, it's, it's big, big increases, right? Yeah. But I mean, like, I think that is their psychologist. It's, it's, it's Mr. Dollar sign, you know, mm-hmm. is their psychologist. And I think that's, you know, why there's like the, the Netflix documentary about, you know, the social media scandal or whatever you want to call it, or, you know, the social media brainwashing. I forget what the name of the, the, the documentary. It's that guy, uh, Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris did the uh, documentary and uh, it's huge on Netflix. You've probably seen it. I don't know. Probably have. I think so. I mean, it it brings to mind like when when we live in this like micro time frame where I feel like everyone lives for just a plus one. Like most often people that I talk to and kind of work with and and collaborate with usually live in this kind of like plus one mentality where it's like, okay, what do we do in an hour? What do we do tomorrow? What do we do next week? But it's, it doesn't usually go like, how do we plan for next year? What does this mean for my 10 year period? What does it mean for my 50 year period? Like, are you thinking about what your grandkids are going to be living in right now? Like some people do, some people don't. But when I think about 
like talking about the nineties, like that's where, that's where we were born and grew up. Like us talking about the nineties right now is like people in the nineties talking about the sixties. And when I think about that, I'm like, okay, there are, there are periods of time where we can look back and, you know, start, start putting these decades in their bin, like the, the 1920s, the fifties. Okay. Now we're in the 2000s, the 2010s. And like for us and in it, it blurs, right? It blurs together. I think the greatest metric for looking at how time has passed is looking at the, the music and the art that has changed from this period to period, because right now it's just this kind of blending blur of like tech to tech to text. Like, okay, Facebook replaces MySpace, And then from there we have Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok and Twitter and all these new communication platforms that have subtle nuances that can find a new way for people to address large unknown groups of people with an idea. And I'm like, okay, so what are the 2050s going to look like? And like right now, I feel like the only, the only context people talk about what will 2050 look like is the environment. That's it. Like, I feel like it's usually all I read or hear about is what will the environment and climate change issues look like in 2050? But other than that, I haven't heard anything about like, what do we want the ideal, you know, medical space to look like? What do we want the education to look like in 2050? How are we evolving our, our, I don't know, our transportation infrastructure? Like, not really. People are like, okay, by 2024, we want to have this. And I'm like, that's so, that's so small. That's like saying by next week, we want to have a new product built. Well, check this out. So it's like, I mean, I think the 2050 predictions are a good conversation because it, again, brings up the idea of well, what's being incentivized right now. That which is not incentivized will never get done. If you don't incentivize anything to get, get whatever aspect, whatever topic sector done, you'll never see any development in that field. And so it's like, okay, what fields are being incentivized right now, right? You look at like education, like huge, huge things for STEM, right? It's usually like huge, like huge money, money lending into to STEM salaries, STEM, not STEM cell, but STEM research and like just getting young kids into STEM just because it's, you know, it's a tough and challenging and very useful, valuable area. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of development in just, you know, like pure maths and so forth. And that's, that's what we've been doing great at. But like now it's like, we're in the era of, you know, like you said, social communication, large scale integration of tech with psych- psychology. And so it's like, well, what are the incentives to actually get these things done? Or maybe it's climate change. What are the rewards? rewards that come with actually pursuing climate change. You know, everyone's like, you got to pursue climate change or else you're going to die. And I'm like, that's not a good incentive for me, man. Like I'm going to die anyways. What is another incentive that is more tangible that I can actually achieve in a lifetime? It's like, okay, you work on doing this for, for climate change. We're going to reward you this much. And they do this in the patent space for any, any pharmaceutical program. It's like, okay, you know, you want to get a super cheap new form of insulin. What are the incentives, right? So if I, once I develop insulin, spend all this time, money, research into getting this brand new insulin that I can license out there, it's like, I want to be rewarded by patent exclusivity rights to, to, to exclusively sell that drug so I can make money. And then after a period of time and then that drug goes generic and then it gets super super cheap yeah. right because then you you basically spread out open the uh the competition space and so it's like you know wh- in terms of like other industries what is that incentive like what are the patent exclusivity rights for a product incentives for other areas that's what needs to be thought of instead of like thinking like okay what needs to get done it's like well what incentives need to get done i think i think it's because you, you can't you can't commercialize philanthropy Right. I think is yeah. what I think is what it is. Like you can't and we're realizing we, we've how, commercialized yeah. we've commercialized the human body to incredible extents. And like you can't 
you can't commercialize positive philanthropy toward the environment. Otherwise it would have been done, right? We can, we can commercialize in the private sector, new technological advances that in an auxiliary way, benefit groups of people or the environment or new ways of doing something. So like, like electric vehicles and Tesla, right? Like the, the driving force behind a lot of this is they're more sustainable. They're more environmentally friendly in the long term of internal combustion engines, but no one really did it because it was, it was so good for the environment. It was, it was a feasible and profitable idea that if engineered the right way, can have these auxiliary benefits right like and like uh, you we would not have near near the level of groundbreaking medical technology and research and development and and life-saving treatments that we have if it was not a commercially sustainable business that's a fact i i, I really like the idea that you can't commercialize philanthropy i think that is very true and i think to basically remedy you know you have to break down what philanthropy is in concrete terms so it's like okay we're making a transition to you know more sustainable cars right let's look at let's look at the reason why i'd even do it like it's it's pure philanthropy to just kind of do it without analyzing hey how is that going to affect my gas bill you know how is that going to affect my energy bill because i'm not going to be incentivized as a user to be gung-ho about you know the green energy transfer when i'm paying 450 460 per gallon you know Right. Like if you look at other states, if you go like in the south, you're going to get like 250 per gallon. Like that's an incentive. Lower my gas prices, lower how much the quality costs. And then I'm actually going to pursue it. And we're going to continue to increase that 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 positive gain there. And like that's what's not being incentivized in the green industry. In my eyes. Well, I think especially out in California, it's a disincentive. It's like, oh, you want to drive a, a gas vehicle? OK, you're going to pay for it. Like you're going to pay more if you want to do that and and disincentivize like, OK, say say the environment and environmental protection is ironically such a huge core part of conversations in California. They do they update infrastructure and highways and roads to fit and accommodate the level of traffic that we have? Or are they saying no, like you don't like it? Take public transportation, use different modes of transportation to get where you need to go. Why would we make it more easy or easier to populate the roads even further with vehicles if we don't want them to be there in the first place? Yes. Yes, exactly. Pay it's more not, for gas. Like it's, they're it's, trying to control the supply and demand from the opposite, from like a price crunch where it's like, okay, you want this commodity, which we don't want you to have, will make it harder for you to have it. In this time so you have to pay yeah, for it. So therefore this, it has a greater value to you. Recognize the value that it brings your life because you will literally pay for it. And this ties all back into what we were talking before about the difference between negative rewards versus positive rewards. Positive rewards have better effects than negative rewards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is just point in case. Like if you say you, we, you know, you have to do this. Right. It's like it's a negative reward, like mm -hmm. just right in there. And it's like I'm not as incentivized if it was a positive. It's an add to my game, to my life. Yeah. I'm not like changing what I'm doing in my life. I'm adding to what I'm doing in my life. So I think during exactly during the pandemic, one of the one of the top things that people I know talked about who still had to commute for work. So that did R&D and worked in labs is is so often, oh my gosh, there's no traffic. This is incredible. There's no traffic. I can get to work in 35 minutes. What used to take me an hour each way. And I think people were, were so surprised about this positive gain that they were so used to the, the negative. They're like, yeah, you know, it's my commute. It is what it is. I live an hour and 15 minutes away from work. And that's just, that's the way it is. Like, that's what I have to do. And then when that was alleviated, oh my gosh, I can get to work in 35 minutes. This is incredible. Look at, the, I, I love this. And now, now that things are starting to open back up and people are coming back, the traffic's coming back. And it, it almost feels like the, 
the momentary or at least segment of period of of prize that the lack of traffic was is equal to how it's been taken away in the opposite direction so if if having traffic normally was your was part of your routine you accepted it it's what it was put you at a, a minus two so not that bad right it doesn't only minus two but then the reduction of traffic put you at a plus four exactly but now that the traffic is back you're at a minus four yes right but it's just what it was before because you, you got you, used to you're it you're already used to it though right so. and so it's like oh yeah and so it's on this expected yeah if you expect a gain of four right now you're going to get a gain of negative four when you find that it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Right. Versus but it's when, right back to where it was. Right. Which you were at a minus two before. Now you're at a minus four. So now people talk about the traffic coming back more than they talked about it when it was normal. Right. And this is just because we get normalized to things. And there is that irrelevance of, of you know, the last couple of months. Right. It's about the last like, you know, very short term amounts of time, like in, in relative to what you've just experienced, yeah. you know, and that just shows, you know, the level of perspective is relatively low when we're making decisions and we're making rational decisions on how these things are going to affect us and how they make us feel on a positive or negative spectrum. Right. And it, it is just realizing, you know, Hey, wait, why is why is the traffic only make me feel negative? You know, just because we were used to it, right? It was, it was the expected outcome. And this is like the whole thing. It's like, there's a huge push though. Like the outcome here is, okay, let's virtualize work, right? Everyone's working from home. Now there's a huge push to virtualize work because of those gains in the commuter field. Mm -hmm. That's just a positive incentive, yeah. right? You're at home. There's all the positives of being at home and so forth. I mean, maybe the distractions, like the only like negative con, like you're potentially a little more distracted, but like, that's how you incentive change. Yeah. There's a net positive outcome. Simple as that, right? When you look at the transfer, like the, the, the forceful transfer of, you know, petroleum products to green new products, that isn't existing. That's why it's not being incentivized, right? I have higher gas prices now. Yeah. That sucks. That's not good. I don't want that. I'm not going to support something that just takes more money out and people might be like, well, you're just, you know, environmentally unconscious about this stuff. And, I'm, and I'd be like, well, it, it's the, looking at the outcomes. This makes me feel this way and this one doesn't make me feel that way. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, when you do that, when you create this gap, it's like, okay, well, how profitable are these industries in the first place? How, what, what are the incentives inside the green, green companies to actually produce new innovative products? They're competing with oil and gas who already produces energy at this rate. Like, unless they can do that, like, you know, and then people would be saying like, okay, well, gas is going to run out. And I'm like, okay, well, how long? What's the time scale? Like, mm -hmm. let's talk about actual outcomes, tangible, concrete solutions to change incentives. So, cause, so, I mean, we do have environmental problems. I'm totally on board with that. Right. No doubt there. It's just like, how do we incentivize people to actually innovate? I think you, you, you finished the sentence where, where people usually don't get to. And you said creating new solutions which people have tried to do over and over and time again, creating new solutions to address these environmental problems we have, but where they, where I feel like we, we don't finish is to change incentives. How do we change people's incentives to want to change their life? And it, you can get on board with like a lot of people who have this philanthropic or altruistic, you know, perspective to things like, I want to make this world better. I want to, you know, my, my almost trivial difference or, or minuscule difference that I can make collectively makes a difference, right? Where it's like the the sum of all of us together. If we all try and get everyone on board, um, can make a difference. But I, I don't think there's there's true incentives that that make people want to make drastic changes. And I think now 
a lot of the focus is like forcing incentives for you know n plus two and reactions here's like, where it gets wild right and, and I, I i don't want to get too political but i mean the whole idea just just take a step back on on the idea of COVID for a second just without us all all of its political ties right now just think about COVID as a problem as an incentive right you don't want to get sick right and so right the fact that COVID is there you can basically do a bunch of stuff so long as COVID is there and just say, hey, you don't want to get sick by COVID, do this now, right? And so what you do is you actually create a bunch of policies that aren't necessarily using the outcome effectively. They're just making the assumption that, hey, we can make these changes because you're going to be incentivized by COVID to accept it, regardless if it even has a change. They're just using COVID as a generalizing incentive structure for all these things, you know, binning them all together and using COVID kind of as an excuse to, you know, start making these mandates and making these changes. And a lot of the conflict here is that some people are saying, hey, yo, COVID, you know, my my risk of getting COVID isn't actually that big of, of, a, of a risk or a concern to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be incentivized to actually follow through with all of your mandates because I don't see your your logic of how how doing these things is going to reduce my risk of COVID, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a it's, a, it's a tricky conversation because I think a lot of people have different, a lot of different perspectives and personal choices that they want to make. And there's always the, the dichotomy of like, okay, how do your personal choices affect yourself versus your personal choices affect everybody else? And I think an interesting like analogy could be, say you live in like San Francisco, like these houses that are literally wall to wall, like there is no space between houses and you have 10 houses in a row where nine out of the 10 of them have like an internal sprinkler fire deterrent system, right? But one doesn't. So it's like, are you going to live on that block of the street when one house could ablaze, which could burn the other ones? Well, even if you have a fire in the other ones, it likely won't be as bad. And if that one house goes flaming up, it will still cause damage to your house. But since you have a sprinkler system, it likely won't burn down. Do you just force that house to get a sprinkler system anyways? Or are you like, okay, well, like I have one and like you don't have one and I want to live here and have my own life. Hope your house doesn't burn down and affect my house. But like my house is sure shit not going to burn down. And it's like, okay, the long-term versus the short-term, like, do we know what the long-term effects are? No, because we, it, we're we living in it right now. We, we, right. we will not know and we won't know for ever. Right. Like that's just a risk. That's like the risk reward that you have to kind of take. So it's like, okay, look at yourself personally and the choices you want to make and I've heard every single different argument where people are like, oh, well then if we're forcing people to take the vaccine, like why can't we force people to make healthier life choices? Because it's also a burden on the healthcare system. So there's like so many different approaches. Together, right? There's each, so many different each, approaches. Each outcome has to have its own relevant incentive. They're though. individual. They're individual. And yeah. my incentive is not your incentive. Like, so in the, in, the, yeah. in the case of like the fire example, it's like, you know, I'm incentives like to keep my house intact by having a sprinkler system just because you don't have one, that's not, you know, that shouldn't be my reason. That's like, you know, get your own things in order, right? Be, be in control of your own life. Take responsibility for your own incentives. You don't want your house to burn down, right? Get a sprint, get a fire system for yourself, right? Yeah. Those incentives are your incentives, not my own. And if everyone just kind of looks over their own incentives, you're, you know, everyone's going to be making moves. Mm-hmm. That so long correlates with the society. The second you try to like lump incentives together and, and start saying, hey, this is a group's incentive, the group's not going to do anything because then you get into the group psychology aspect where it's like, 
Like when, like think about when you go into like, you know, uh, when you're in school and you get assigned like a group project, right? And it's, it's usually like four or five people. What always ends up happening is usually there's one or two individuals that will take the charge and do most of the project. Mm-hmm. The other people will not do it, right? And, and so the actual amount that you'd expect from a group of five is actually of much lower quality. And I think this is what happens when you do these grouping identities for incentives, right? The incentive has to be, has to be belong to every single individual, not just a certain select few that agree with the idea. They have to actually use those incentives to actually you know, develop a group effort. And I think too often people just want others to do the things and they just want to say, hey, I agree with you, but I don't want to actually, you know, change my incentive structure to match doing something that is more beneficial. Yeah. You see what I mean? In like a very abstract way, but like, you know, on, on a large scale, I can see this happening all the time. It's just like, you know, all these people like gravitate around climate change and, and, and you know, they all use it as communicating and speaking points and so forth. And I'm like, that's great. You're raising the awareness of this of this issue. Now do something. You know, like just because just because you were very enamored by someone who was speaking on global like climate change or something, and then you start to decide, okay, my incentive is to speak on climate change. Once everyone's speaking about climate change, no one's getting anything done about climate change. Yeah. You know, the fact that the fact that someone who's speaking about climate change doesn't motivate any incentives to actually fix climate change. And I mean, it's a hard freaking problem. Like I'm not just saying it's like an easy thing. You can just do it one by one. But the fact that it's just like. I don't know. I, I, I all too often just see awareness raising events without any like iterative concrete solutions to start actually changing that. That is that is both, you know, consistent with the incentives of the mass. And that's the most challenging aspect is, you know, when you're trying to transfer to like green, green new energy or whatever, the incentive just isn't there yet. Like for both the investor side to actually develop those products and on the on the consumer who has to actually pay more money to actually get these products going underway. And so it's like this whole this whole balance equation. It's like okay, we need something different. You know, we need yeah. we need a solution, and that's what we should be talking about. We should be raising awareness about the solutions, not just saying, "Hey, here's a solution. It doesn't really work that well, but it's something." You know, it's like okay, let's just keep ideating. Let's keep incentivizing innovation about it, or else it's never going to change. Yeah, I wonder. I would love to talk to someone who works like very very closely with kind of these world economic forum philanthropic problems, and and. I often wonder incentives obviously change when you're not spending someone else's money. And that's when I look at like the Gates Foundation and all of these like privately funded, also publicly funded, but privately funded efforts and and organizations that that collectively find talent that's really truly passionate about wanting to use their skills and their benefits and and access and resources to enact change in like different places. And when I look at the people who work as as you know, product managers and like there's a there's a title for them, like organizational managers at like the Gates Foundation. They have some they have some hefty backgrounds. Like they have some really established people come in and and have a career learning all these different things and then going and working on, you know, virology research and development for malaria and all this stuff in, in different parts of the world. And it makes me wonder like can the government or or at least like public institutions organize change on that scope? And it makes me wonder how the incentives change when you're spending someone else's money. Like if you, if you are a very wealthy investor wanting to make philanthropic change, like the Parker Institute for cancer or the Gates foundation, which is funded by probably a mix. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm assuming they have grant funding as well as like private funding. People probably try a lot harder when your dollars on the line. 
And I think this is the whole problem with having high taxation rates in a, in a country, right? The more you tax, the more you basically give people your money to do with what they think is best for you. And it's like, well, it's not their money and they're not going to be as incentivized to, you know, look over each penny of those those amounts of monies and funds because it's not their money. They just got it. And so you're going to see that the quality of the product they produce with that money is usually low. And so you see, like, if you look at just the contrast in different private institutions and public institutions, you can you can really see, you know, there's there's a clear dichotomy. And I won't even make the argument that it is better or worse. I'll leave that up to anyone else anyone else who looks at these things and observes and to make their own conclusions. But I'm just saying there is a clear difference and it should be well noted that it can potentially have bad outcomes when you basically are not spending your own money and you're not aware of, you know, just how important those funds are to your living and livelihood and whatnot, whatever, whatever it may be. And, you know, it's just a very tricky, tricky equation. And, it's tough, man. You just have to have people that are responsible of of these these incentive structures and what's going to change their motives for action. And I think that's really the centralizing idea here is just you know what motivates action. Mm-hmm. I like I like thinking about it on the individual perspective. Like I think that's where I've been able to conceptualize the most tangible change of action is on an individual scale, where where more often because it's the loudest we see the the, the mass mentality of, of group psychology change and the way people as a whole can, can get behind an idea. But I think when you look at an individual go through steps of change and, and recognize change, changes in incentive and like goal setting, like how can, how can you take an individual person who has experienced, you know, X, Y, Z things in their life and say like, okay, now from this, what, like what set of what set of questions? I think what I'm getting is like what set of specific questions that are unique in in the approach, but also general enough you could ask anyone to find this path. So say it's a, a, a series of questions going down a path, and the goal at the end of the path is to have this person or have someone identify what their true incentives and, and drives are. Because I feel like so often people are doing things for reasons they don't actually like to fulfill goals they don't actually care about to win prizes that that have diminishing return Mm -hmm. where it's like taking it away may not even give you like that much of a negative repercussion like you don't even care that much whether you have it or not but you have it and you're used to having it and like used to having something feels good and having that taken away is uncomfortable but just like how we have to adapt and change maybe taking those things away is a challenge that has the positive reinforcement like going to the gym or like like exercise where it's the inverse of not easy euphoria for hard or unpleasant sustaining feelings but unpleasant sustain unpleasant temporary feelings promoting sustained euphoria and pleasure so like long way of asking is there a set of questions that you could ask generally and narrow down to find out what someone truly cares about. Like, how do you find in someone, how do, what, what is important to you? What do you care about? It makes, makes me think of like the fight club, like fight club when he's at the gas station. Like, do you have to have all of the things flash before your eyes to care enough to think, okay, take everything I have away. What's the one thing I want back? 
I think that's a good place to end it. We'll leave our audience to think about that question there. We'll bring it back. And uh, I think that'll that'll conclude our episode here today. And I think, again, really the centralizing point of this episode is really what motivates action here. I mean, and, and, and the, the real value here is that once you get the initial action done, action precedes motivation and you start the cycle. It's just finding motivation for that one first action that gets you on the track to do whatever you think is best for yourself. Yeah. Tomorrow can always be day one. Why not make it today? That's right. Thank you all. See you next time.